We've got to bring the full force of our constituencies out. And, and if we make the mistake of talking only about working class white voters and not leaning into the challenges that are everyday challenges for black women and black men and Latinos and Latinas, uh, we're going to find a real challenge here. People know that they don't like Donald Trump by and large, but they also need to know what you're going to do to help make their lives, their communities, their condition better. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. I'm Tina Brown and you're listening to TBD. Despite the woke dreams of the hyper-aggressive Twitterverse, the Democrats may, yet again, end up nominating an old white guy to run for president against the reigning old white guy. Thankfully, the party's future looks more like the rest of America. In addition to some genuine stars among the cavalcade of candidates, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Beto O'Rourke, the party's deep bench includes some talented, diverse politicians who will likely be shaking hands and eating corn dogs in Iowa one day. Among them are Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, Stacey Abrams, and my guest today, the rising Democratic star and former Florida gubernatorial candidate, Andrew Gillum. In 2018, the then Tallahassee mayor came within 35,000 votes out of more than 8 million from winning the brutally contentious and racially inflamed election that included a presidential endorsement for his opponent and triggered an infamous Florida recount. But like any true progressive, Gillum has put the past behind him and is only looking forward. Though he's just 39, Gillum has spent nearly half his life in politics. He was first elected to office at 23, while still a college student majoring, what else, political science. After 11 years as a Tallahassee city commissioner, he was elected as mayor. Three years later, Gillum launched his gubernatorial campaign and so nearly made history as Florida's first black governor. And while he's not among the cast of thousands running for president in 2020, Andrew Gillum has 2020 vision about the future of American politics, especially his own. Andrew Gillum, welcome to TBD. Thank you so much, Tina. Thank you for the invitation to be with you today. So this is the first time, Andrew, in your adult life that you haven't held a political office. Are you having any withdrawal I... <laughs> symptoms? <laughs> Thanks for the reminder, Tina. I appreciate that. Is it kind of strange waking up without that? No, I, I have to tell you, you know, in all candor, uh, I certainly would, would prefer to have uh, been governor of Florida, especially over the last three months of this legislative session, given what transpired here in Florida, undermining the right to vote for returning citizens, uh, what we saw happen as it relates to, you know, arming teachers with guns uh, in schools. Um, I mean, just a lot of bad stuff. So I, I shared this with Stacy. Uh, and some others, um, Abrams, that is, that, that this is when it hurts the most. 
when you see who, frankly, is impacted when we lose these elections? Well, I mean, this whole question of allowing ex-felons to vote it would yeah. seem to be particularly cruel what DeSantos has done. Well, I, I'll tell you, I called on the governor and uh, continue to call on the governor to veto what we call a poll tax. Right. Uh, the voters of the state of Florida, over 64 percent of them, frankly, more people than who voted for me or who voted for him to be governor, voted for Amendment 4 to become the law of the land right. in the state of Florida. And it did not include fines, fees, uh, court costs as a condition of being able to get out there and have your rights restored. Does paying off the court costs really lock former uh, incarcerated people out? Oh, well, in my opinion, let's just take the Brennan Center for Justice's uh, report on this. They did a really good analysis of when these costs are added as a condition of reentry into society, that only 3% of people satisfy that cost. If those statistics hold in the state of Florida, you're talking about 97% of that 1.4 million not being able to gain their rights to vote, which was not the spirit of the law. And it wasn't what the people of the state of Florida adopted into Florida's constitution. What we said is that we are a forgiving state, that we're going to be a state that does not judge people forever by their worst day. Yeah. And the legislature, for political, nakedly political reasons, got in there, uh, mucked with the constitutional amendment as a way to keep people from being able to access the franchise. It's, it's really a, a cruel and cynical measure. You know, I was just thinking, though, you're close to Tom Steyer, who donated yeah. very generously to your campaign. Can you get him off this impeachment kick and get him focused on voter suppression? <laughs> because he could, listen, he could pay off the court fines of all the ex-felons so that they could vote. Well, listen, uh, there are a lot of people who could do that, Tom being one of them. But I will, you know, Tom and I are actually agreed on the fact that this president is wholly unfit for office. And as a result of the Mueller report, we know uh, at least 10 separate instances where uh, the president intervened in a way that is inconsistent with his office. Uh, and the truth is, I think we can hold the president accountable through the congressional system, but we are ultimately going to hold him accountable at the ballot box if we do the job that needs to be done. And that is doing the work uh, in, in critical states around the country uh, so that we bring more of our voters into the process, because I firmly believe if we turn our vote out, we can win this election. And, and frankly, that's why I've decided to put my time and attention. And I've talked to Tom about helping that out and, and many others. Uh, and I trust that they're going to, certainly in the state of Florida, join me in doubling down on this effort to reengage and register more voters yeah. uh, so that, that a state that comes down to one percent of the vote can deliver our 29 electoral votes to the Democratic nominee. Well, I mean, you lost the gubernatorial race by a heartbreaking half a percentage point. Uh, that is yeah. just so close to making history as the first black governor of Florida. I mean, take me back to your decision to withdraw your concession because the vote was so close and then yeah. coming up short by so little. Yeah, I tell you, this was, you know, I, every time, Tina, I think that I have gone through the stages of grief. Uh, uh, I'm reminded of, of just the heartbreak. And I gave one example of just coming out of this legislative session and seeing what happened. But I'll tell you, you know, in Florida, where elections have consistently now come down uh, to one percent, Barack Obama won the state twice by one yeah. percent, uh, Donald Trump by one percent. Last two Democratic nominees lost the state of Florida by some 80 or so thousand votes, less than one percent. And 
my wow. case, less than you know 0.4 percent, uh, getting us the closest we've gotten in a governor's race in this state in 24 years. But you you got to also consider that 85,000 votes didn't get counted. You also have to consider that for the last 20 years, Republicans in my state have been working overtime, going out of their way to figure out ways to keep people from the franchise. I mean, we had to go to court to ensure that we could get uh, college uh, campuses to, to, to have their own precincts. You're talking about campuses wow. that have tens of thousands of students on them, yet, you know, the legislature worked to keep those campuses from being able to have students vote. Andrew, what was the worst example, really, of, of what happened in your own race? I mean, anything particularly egregious? Well, I, I particularly find egregious the signature match law in the state of Florida. And I'm not the only one. The federal courts during the recount process were extremely strong in their condemnation of Florida's law as it relates to the fact that uh, the W in my signature this year didn't look like the one from last year. And so an untrained person can look at your signature and choose to reject your ballot uh, uh, because they determined that it didn't look like the one that was on file from 10 years ago. Wow. And the cure process for that, the fact that so many people didn't even know that their ballots hadn't been counted or were rejected, and the fact that there is no universal way throughout the state of Florida to notify people and then have them come in and cure that process. We also had, as you know, Tina, in, in South Florida, the Trump supporter who was sending bombs uh, to political figures around the country out of a, a South Florida post office, that same post office at the same time as receiving ballots, but uh, the bombs caused a slowdown, rightfully so, to make sure that uh, the mail was checked and that no bombs were being uh, uh, sent to individuals. And guess what? For voters who had done their job, uh, sent their ballots off in time, were postmarked in time, where Florida law says that if those ballots are not received on the day of the election, uh, by the close of business, those ballots cannot be counted, even though they were postmarked prior to that point. And even though the counting continued for a couple of weeks after, there's some things that are unjust about that. And by the way, Tina, on the on the signature mismatch, the University of Florida produced a report that showed a ballots that are rejected in the state of Florida over mismatch of signature. Seven out of 10 of them are from voters of color. Wow. I also testified earlier this week um, in, in front of Congresswoman Marsha uh, Fudge's a subcommittee. Uh, they bought the field hearing to Broward County. And I sat on a panel with women who talked about what it meant in Polk County to show up, a county that has n- a number of Latino voters there where there were no Spanish language ballots available to them, where people were turned around because they could not bring their interpreter or re- were told that they could not bring an interpreter to assist them at completing their ballots. And those are just the stories that we have heard about, right? I hope you're compiling all of these stories into like 10 bullet points because we need a graph. We need something we can blast, Absolutely. you know, out because it, it is really so egregious. I mean, Kamala Harris just said recently that um, but for voter suppression, you would now be the governor of Florida. Do you believe that? Well, I'll tell you what, what I believe is that in a democratic society, uh, what we need and what I would ask, and I think what the voters of my state would ask, is that we have an election system that allows for legally cast votes to be counted and that ultimately the person who is sworn into office is the one who won the most votes. That's it. 
That's the way democracy is supposed to work. So rather than for me relitigating, you know, um, you know, the, the ins and out necessarily of 2018, the work that I'm trying to do now is to ensure some accountability in the process and trust in the process uh, and try to engage more people in the process. Because I honestly believe the worst thing that can happen and the lasting damage of voter disenfranchisement that occurs is that people then resolve that their votes don't matter anyway because they're going to do what they want to do regardless. That's the kind of uh, feeling that I cannot allow to set in. And that's why I've tried to focus as many uh, uh, people as we possibly can on the longer term solutions here so that in 2020, we deliver this state. And the, the, the way I'm planning to wage this war is on deconstructing the structures that create the opportunity for people's votes to not be legally counted and even worse over disenfranchised because of the way they look, the color of their skin, the language they speak or the economic status of the neighborhoods they come from. I mean, knowing all of this now, is there anything you would have done differently in your own race? Well, I will tell you, I mean, one of the things that I wish uh, had been done by me and by others is I wish we would have really gotten stronger on the registration game prior to, um, you know, prior to the election. Uh, I had a conversation with David Axelrod and he said, Dang, Andrew, I need to check these numbers, these registration numbers. Uh, when Obama was on the ballot in this state in 2008, Democrats had a registration advantage over Republicans of almost 700,000 more registered Dems than ours. When I was on the ballot just 10 years later, that advantage had shrank to 250,000 uh, uh, registration difference. At the same time, we've seen migration of 65 and older white voters from the Midwest into this state who don't need a mailer, don't need anyone knocking on their doors. They have a default setting to participate in the election and vote. So when you look at uh, uh, 65 and older white voter participation in Obama's election in my state in 2008, that particular demographic were 21 percent of the total electorate. In my race for governor, that demographic was 35 percent of the total electorate. Mm -hmm. And so what we've got now is the convergence of a registration issue and a migration issue that is all weighing down on the state of Florida. And in spite of that, we got close. Closer than we had gotten in, in, in the governor's race in the last 24 years, but it wasn't good enough. And so as I've come to, to say uh, post the election, Tina, if you're a Democrat running for a statewide office in Florida, you can't just win. You got to win win uh, in order to secure the office because of all of the barriers that are really stacked against us. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug, ignored a leaky faucet, pretended your half painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all gone unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few taps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. 
We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. What did you mean when you said that Florida is tired of being a cheap date in elections? Well, I tell you, it is it is what I experienced as well. I mean, the too often the transaction that's made in our state is that uh, we come in in a, in a presidential year typically. And in the few short months or so before the election and between the time of the nominee selection and the election, we try to then, you know, uh, 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 visit black churches and flood the zone with 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 our communications and uh, convince people that we've been standing with them all along when they haven't heard from us uh, since the last presidential election. Um, I, I think it's expensive money. I think it is the worst spent kind of resources. And what I've been trying to convince donors of nationally and otherwise is that we're not going to be able to short circuit this process. What the Republicans in our state have done, and I think that they've done it in a couple of other states as well, is that they have built an operation to deliver a win to their nominee, regardless of who that person is. They do the difficult work in between cycles to engage their base, engage their constituencies. I get that it's easier when you're talking to an almost monolith. But the truth is, is if Democrats plan on winning, we've got to begin doing that work now. And that means making investments in 2019 to impact on 2020 and uh, 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 beyond 2020 into 22 uh, and continuing in between those years. So my work right now is to engage and to register uh, and to win. And that work begins right now by making sure that we put the money in the field Deal with our communities, speak with our communities, let them know that we're there, not just in an election year, but in the time in between. Uh, and that's why I announced our effort to do a million uh, voter registration effort here. Well, I mean, obviously, there's only one of you to traverse, you know, this enormous state and all of these communities. I mean, what kind of a team are you building to sort of be yeah. the real persuaders? Because this is granular yeah. work. This yeah. is very granular work. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right on that, Tina. And by the way, I have no illusions about being able to do this work alone. And that's why we've already built a coalition of some 30 groups on the ground, pre-existing groups, groups that do really great community building building in a community organizing work and have a theory of change that they're not here for an electoral transaction, that they're here to be on the front lines of these communities and the problems that confront these communities every day of the week. And so what we are doing is building a statewide network of groups who were each picking their respective piece of the turf to do registration and ongoing engagement with the constituencies that they have trust in. We're talking about organizers who have cultural competency in the communities that they're working because they come from them. And the, the issue prior to this point has been those groups have been completely under-resourced up until the, you know, the waning months uh, right before the right. election. Yep. But, but we're not talking $5 million investments in off years. We're talking about $20 million of investments. And if some people scoff at that number, consider the fact that we'll spend over a billion dollars in this presidential race coming up likely. And the fact is, is that much of that money will largely be held for the last minute spending, which does not yield uh, what we need considering the communities that we have to engage and motivate and keep motivated over an extended period of time if we're going to turn them out. So when you ran, you actually talked about how you faced decades of muscle memory about what a candidate is supposed to look and sound like. What was it like fighting back against that every day of the campaign trail? I mean, you must have really learned so much from this race. 
Well, Tina, I can't wait to find the time to put it all down on paper, to be quite honest with you. This was, without a doubt, um, one of the hardest things, if not the hardest thing that I've done in my life up to this point. What I meant by the muscle memory is, is that for a long time, we basically said that our nominees have to be, you know, conservative and white and mostly male, if not all male. Um, uh, you know, uh, have your own money, your own resources in order to win. And I literally was the brokest candidate. I mean, from a network standpoint, <laughs> you know, I, I come from a working class family and I'm a working person myself. My wife and I both. Uh, I raised six million dollars in the primary election. I think my opponents spent a combined over 90 million dollars and literally became the nominee with the least amount of money. But then uh, given the fact that our election was on the 28th of August, we had a short time to ramp from that point to get to a general uh, election. And so when, when I talked earlier about the fact that we've got to build an operation that is prepared to deliver a win, that meant that we had to have groups and organizations and a party that was well-resourced and built to receive a nominee and then carry us the rest of the way. But much of that I had to, you know, last minute and pretty quickly build an operation, a $55 million operation in 45 days, 60 days to get us, uh, you know, get us over the hump. We got really close, but close isn't good enough. And that's why, you know, I'm committed between now and this uh, this next cycle and trying to build something that's much more long, you know, long lasting. So if you were if you were running yourself for president in 2020, I mean, what would your platform? Which be? I'm not. Yes, you're not. I know. And I mean, I've got to tell you, when I look at the other candidates, I'm thinking, you know, two of them are extremely old and a lot of them are extremely young or, or just totally inexperienced. And I'm thinking, why not you? Well, I'll tell you, first of all, I honestly had to consider what was going to be the highest and best use for my time and talent coming off of a race where, again, people put $55 million into making me a household brand uh, name in Florida, where people, you know, we had 77,000 volunteers who took an action on behalf of our campaign. Um, the best thing that I felt that I could do, given the pivotal role that Florida plays in its 29 electoral votes, coming off the lessons that I learned from my race for governor was to get back to the basics of organizing so that we can build the kind of uh, impenetrable majority uh, in my state that could deliver Florida 29 electoral votes to whomever the Democratic nominee is. And I will tell you, and you probably know this, Tina, because you look at the polls, you look at uh, the environment uh, that we now find ourselves, Florida is not going to be an easy state. But I want people to know that this is not the year to write Florida off as, you know, solidly red. We got closer than we had and in 20 years, this last election cycle, we took more House seats back this last election cycle. We flipped two congressional seats this last cycle to, from Republican to Democrat. Uh, we picked up a Senate seat in the state legislature, and now we're four seats away from coming into parity and near the majority uh, if we do that work. And so this is not the year to give up. And, and for any of those people that are out there talking about a pathway to the White House for Democrats that doesn't include Florida, I would say ludicrous. Yes, there may be other ways to get there, but there is only one way for Donald Trump to get a second term, and that is by running straight through Florida. Uh, and that means that we want to prevent that. We've got to do the difficult work of making sure that we build a firewall right here in Florida. So which of the candidates that you see out there nationally? Oh, come on. <laughs> come on. I mean, Bernie Sanders campaigned for you. Are you going to support him in 2020? Um, 
Well, Biden campaigned for me, as did Julian Castro, as did a number of the candidates running for president uh, of the United States. And I count a number of them as my friends. Uh, I will tell you, I do think that the one who wins is going to be the one who casts a bigger and a better future and vision for the future uh, for working people uh, in my state and, and, and in the country. I do not believe that it will be sufficient enough a strategy to simply say that Donald Trump is bad and that he's unqualified for the office that he holds. We tried that in 2016, and most of us already know that to be true. The way we are going to win is by getting out there, organizing our communities. I've told people who have asked me, you know, Andrew, which, which candidate? I said, listen, I want to do what the Republicans have done, which is, by the way, whatever candidate uh, is produced, we're prepared to deliver a win. And that means we got to do the hard work in the process in order to produce that win. But I will tell you, I'm impressed by some of what I see coming from, um, you know, Senator Warren by way of policy. Uh, I, I appreciate and value the, the grit that Kamala Harris is showing out there on the trail, probably best demonstrated in some of the congressional hearings. I really value what we see coming from Pete Buttigieg. And I get that a lot of critique of him is that, you know, he hasn't put enough meat on the bones from a policy standpoint. But I think it's there's something interesting about trying to wide cast around a set of values and allowing people to organize under and around that. And obviously, Joe Biden brings a great strength to this race as well. He's a well-known entity. And yes, being well-known comes with its degree of baggage. But if, if Joe Biden is able to pivot, not only being a long-term elected official with great policy chops and long experience and credibility into a big vision for where he wants to take the future and not to just litigate Donald Trump, I think he becomes a really big uh, factor in this race. So I think we got it. The, the, the good part is we got an embarrassment of riches amongst candidates. Uh, the bad part is that I hope that we don't consume ourselves so much much with this question of electability that we avoid doing the difficult work that's going to be necessary on the ground to deliver a win. Well, Biden has the support of older black voters, but do you think that's going to be enough? No, I don't think that will be enough. I mean, obviously, those are the folks who may vote in primaries, but in generals, he's going to have to convince a lot of young people to be for him. He's going to have to convince um, the, the, the the Latino community that, that, that he's their guy, that he's their champion. There There is a big web that has to come together for Democrats. The other side has it easier because, you know, by and large, they're motivating people off of, of fear, a promise that it will be better by controlling those constituencies and communities, largely black and brown and different, uh, so that they don't become a, a prevalent majority uh, in this country. And so a lot of that is stoked on fear. You know, what bothers me, Andrew, is I'm not hearing yet any kind of a slogan that marshals all of that. I mean, you know, Make America Great Again, that spoke to what we know that it spoke to, you know, nationalistic, yeah. uh, national and, grandeur, yeah. you know, all of that. But, you yeah. know, we haven't yet heard anybody from the Democrats yet formulate what is that vision that you're speaking about around which we can rally. What would yours be, do you think? Well, I, I mean, what I would say just in most direct response is, is 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 we've got a little bit of time to assess this out. We haven't had our first debate yet. We haven't heard them uh, challenge each other and I think show and put forth their best effort yet on the stage. I'm looking forward to that and I'm glad to see that Florida is playing host uh, to that first debate. Uh, first, I guess, first two debates, but first debate um, next month. I mean, I, I 
I'm not running for president, so I won't necessarily offer what a what a slogan necessarily might be. But I do think that there are a set of values that people want to embrace again. They want respect again. Uh, they want dignity uh, uh, in the office again. They want some of the issues that many of the Democrats are talking about, which are kitchen table issues. We're going to have to figure out a way to size those kitchen table issues down so that we're not just basically running off a litany of public policy issues. But, but I trust that through this primary process, we're going to get to that thing. It's so easy to motivate people off of nostalgia uh, when the country was more monolithic. It's going to be much more complicated uh, to convince a group of people who have had wage stagnation, who haven't really benefited from the great largesse that we see happening necessarily in the stock market, and they don't really know how to interpret that. Because from their standpoint, certainly in my state, 44 percent of the people in Florida still can't make ends meet at the end of the month. Uh, so we're going to have to talk to those voters, but also for those voters who may not find themselves under economic pressure, but just want dignity and respectability. Uh, uh, to be restored to the office of the presidency, that they're going to be looking for certain character traits that I think our cast of candidates have in spades over our opponent, uh, uh, Mr. Trump. You know, one kind of group that I do feel is never really quite given the appreciation they deserve is is black women, frankly. I mean, I uh, I did a great conversation in Texas with three major sort of black women in the Democratic Party, and they all kind of felt strongly that they've been the bedrock of the Democratic vote for so long, but somehow they've always been taken for granted. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, first of all, for ditto, 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 an exclamation mark. Uh, the role that black women have played in holding the Democratic Party down for, you know, so and when I say holding it down, I mean keeping it together, right. delivering the victories that we've seen from Alabama, you know, special election, you know, before and, and, and onward. And I do believe that candidates are going to have to speak to an agenda. And I know a lot of people like to avoid these very direct conversations about what are you going to do uh, for certain specific constituencies. But black women and frankly, the, the wealth of our constituencies are over an answer to why is it that the wage gap exists in the way that it does for 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 black women who are equally skilled, equally talented, if not more, and many of the career fields and professions? Why is it when it comes to micro loans and micro lending and early startup money for black women in businesses that black women lag so far behind? What are we going to do to help shoulder some of the burden uh, that's being placed on that really important constituency within our demographics? Uh, a candidate who can speak to that and is willing to speak to that courageously, I think could do themselves a lot of credit, particularly in this Democratic primary. But fast forwarding, I think in the general, we've got to bring the full force of our constituencies out. And and if we make the mistake of talking only about working class white voters and not leaning into the challenges that are everyday challenges for black women and black men and Latinos and Latinas, uh, we're going to find a real challenge here. People know that they don't like Donald Trump by and large, but they also need to know what you're going to do to help make their lives, their communities, their condition better. One of the big stars we've seen rise, uh, uh, you know, who had a very similar story to what happened to you in in, um, Florida was Stacey Abrams in in Georgia. Um, She took a pass on the Senate. Did you discuss it with her at all? And and, and do you think she should run for the, uh, you know, for the presidency? You know, Stacey and I are very, very good friends and we talk all the time. I would encourage Stacy to do what really sits at her heart and what drives it. I, I know very much so Stacy wanted to be governor of the great state of Georgia, and she should be. I think she have, has really surmised that her 
um, highest skill sets is as an executive. And she has had the legislative experience, and she's led the legislative experience in Georgia before. And so I trust Stacey to decide for herself uh, where she thinks her highest and best use is at this time. But she is a key player who we have got to keep on the field. Uh, And if she were to decide to make a run for the presidency, I I truly believe that there would be a big constituency of voters out there across the country, black, white, otherwise, male, female, who will find her a very, very interesting and intriguing and probably motivating and inspiring choice. Uh, But obviously, I'll leave it to my friend to determine. I think she's given herself to September, uh, you know, to sort of make a decision on that. And and I think she's owed that after what she's done over the last two years in this race for government. I, I think she's really charismatic and a powerhouse, personally. I mean, if you were asked to serve as a vice presidential candidate to any one of these candidates, would you consider that? Oh, goodness. Let me tell you, I I don't hold any hope necessarily out for that to happen. What I'm what I'm hopeful for, however, is to be relevant in this race as someone who is going to work very, very hard to deliver Florida's 29 electoral votes. Um, Obviously, if someone were to find me useful uh, in other ways along that journey, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But between now and this election, I'm going to be fully focused on trying to transform this state. Whatever you think of what we're going through right now politically, whatever you think of Trump, the economy is clearly booming. I mean, what do you say yeah. to those who, who fear that people will vote only on the economy in 2020? Well, first of all, we should acknowledge that we are thankful that Barack Obama began a recovery that has extended through the Trump administration and hopefully, you know, beyond. But we still have great economic inequality and unease uh, in far too many of the communities uh, uh, that I care about and that we know about, not just in my state, but around the country. Um, I'm hopeful that the American people will really look at the totality of what we're looking for in a president. Yes, we want a booming economy. Yes, we want people to have uh, uh, you know access to good jobs. But we also want them to have access to good wages. We also want them to have access to good health care, uh, where, where they can see a, a doctor on a regular basis for maintenance and care and not just emergency room care. But we also want good schools, public schools, and teachers who are paid wages that they can live on, and communities that guarantee us a good, strong quality of life. And so the stock market in and of itself does not tell us the complete picture about the kind of country that we want. Are you at all worried that the Democrats hell-bent sort of focus on the, you know, the blizzard of subpoenas, the, the, the drive for impeachment, etc., is going to distract the Democratic message from these things that are so incredibly critical in order to win? Well, I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time. I think the Congress has a job to do. This president is going to continue to stonewall and try to goad us uh, into, you know, even deeper investigations. And and honestly, Congress is a, is a, is a, is a co-equal branch of government. It's got to do a job. But our candidates also have to get out there and do a job and cast a bigger vision. I mean, l- listen, what people want, they're not looking for perfect, but they are looking for real. They're looking for us to level with them, not only about what's happening in this administration, but what we're going to do for them. I'm hopeful that our presidential candidates will not get sucked into a morass here, but will get out there, talk about what it is that they're going to do, and hold the president accountable all along the way. I'm a believer that we can walk and chew gum at the same Mm -hmm. time. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. 
Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Okay, so 2020 is only a year away. And then after that, it's another, you know, three or four before the governorship comes up again or a Senate race that you could do there. What happens to you post-2020? I mean, this, you know, you're a big piece of political protein. <laughs> well, I t- well, I appreciate that. I'm trying to add my protein to my diet now. <laughs> but listen... I don't believe that my electoral uh, political career is done. I mean, I'm I'm really driven by the belief that we can actually make real change that impacts people's lives through uh, an honest public policymaking process. Um, I will tell you, Tina, in all transparency, I don't exactly know what the next thing is. I want it badly uh, to be governor of the state of Florida for a lot of reasons, um, principally among them for the good that I thought that and felt that we could do. But going forward, I think the first step is building a lasting infrastructure in this state. And if we do that, a state that comes down to 40,000 votes or 33,000 votes or 10,000 votes in Senator Nelson's case, if we do that hard work right now, man, we can transform this state for the foreseeable future, especially given that the decennial census is going to take place in 2020. And this next legislature is going to be in the in the catbird seat of drawing the next set of districts, which will dictate what the next 10 years of, 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 of political power looks like in the state of Florida. So the stakes are high for us here. Were you surprised by what the state legislature just passed on carry guns, allowing teachers to carry guns? Because even with the massacres at the Orlando nightclub and Parkland, which were in Florida, uh, nothing seems to have uh, be changing except for the worst. I mean, Governor DeSantis is expected to sign that. Um, yeah, no, was that a surprise no, no. to you, or did you think that's the way it would go if if you didn't win? Oh, listen, I, it did not surprise me in the least. The, the legislature and the governor is a wholly owned subsidiary of the NRA. Uh, I never expected that they would do anything uh, to disrupt that balance of power and influence over them. It was a little surprising that they went so hard in the direction that they did. They also robbed the public education system of tens of millions in resources that are already affecting a, a public education system that is like 46 in quality out of 50 states where teachers are, are the 45th lowest paid uh, in the country. We're talking about the third largest state in all of America. I mean, their agenda is extremely clear. They are doing nothing but delivering on the promises that they made over the course of the election. My message is, is that elections have consequences. Mm-hmm. And that's why we don't have the luxury of sitting back, uh, uh, you know, uh, watching and observing this process, that we need as many folks to, to, to lean into it as we possibly can. Otherwise, what we've seen happen in Florida, we're going to see again in spades at the federal level should Donald Trump be reelected. And God knows uh, we've all got to be doing what we can in our power to prevent that from happening. So, Andrew, you do seem to be a person who, who truly loves the game of politics, as, as Bill Clinton did, as well as, you know, having great fire in your belly. I mean, it, what is it that really sort of drives you and, and, and makes you love and be very accomplished, frankly, at, you know, the whole process of politics, not simply about making speeches, but really getting deep into this kind of, um, you know, community organizing, if you like, and, mm-hmm. and, and granular stuff? Well, to, I'll tell you, Tina, I mean, before I was elected, I worked um, for People for the American Way Foundation and ran a program called Arrive with Five. 
Uh, as a student at Florida A&M University, my alma mater, I was student body president. And the entirety of my four years, I spent marching and leading marches down to the state capitol and protests of Governor Jeb Bush. First, his effort to get rid of affirmative action. Then it was his three-tier initiative to tier the university system and put my HBCU at the bottom of that tier list. And then we had the 2000 presidential election. And then we saw, you know, what we've seen around criminal justice that has evolved, you know, uh, here in the state of Florida. I mean, it, it, this has been a really constant passion for me because growing up where I grew up, I mean, I'm from Miami. I'm the fifth of seven children to my mother who was a school bus driver and my dad who was a construction worker. Of my seven siblings, uh, I'm the first to graduate from high school and the first to graduate from college. And to see my little brother and little sister come behind me and accomplish the same thing, uh, we know well what it means to see intergenerational poverty disrupted thanks to a good public education. When you've lived that and you've experienced it, when you've, when you've had to wait for the free dental clinic to come around before you could get your teeth cleaned and you watched your mother get up before daybreak every single day to go out there and slave on a job in order to keep a roof over our head and food on the table and clothes on our back, you don't forget that. And if you ever get an opportunity to change that situation and outcome for people, you do it as an activist, as an organizer, as an elected official, a policymaker, whatever that role is. And now I'm out of that game. We acknowledge that, you know, early on in our conversation. I'm not an elected official. I'm a private citizen, but I still have a relevant role to play in trying to deliver on the things that I believe in. And I, they come very authentically from my own lived experience and an experience that knows that we can do good by doing good. And, and, and I'm committed to it. Yeah. Well, I was very moved by uh, somewhere I read that you had to get up with your mother because she was a bus driver and you had to ride with her because, you know, there was no one to stay home with you. Um, yep. That must have been a very formative thing for you. Well, I'll tell you, you never forget it, right? You right. never forget. Um, my, my mom, she was just with me last weekend. She lives in Georgia, which is where her family originally, you know, hails from. Uh, and my mother, you know, came to spend time with my three kids, her grandkids. And, you know, on day two, you know, she had back problems and spent, you know, half the day in, in, in our guest bedroom. And those back problems come from uh, before we had real power steering on those buses. My mother, you know, it, with her form and shape, you know, yanking that wheel and pulling that wheel. And she still has injuries to this day from that. Right. Wow. Yeah. So I remember too well what that was like. And you're right. Um, you never forget what that means. Um, and it powers you forward. It really and, does. And your brother, Chuck, of course, is also, he was actually an incarcerated uh, man. Yes. What happened there? And I mean, he served 12 years in prison, I gather, for, for, for drug trafficking. I mean, what what did that do to the family? And, and what insights did you gain from, from his incarceration? Yeah. Drug trafficking between Florida and, and Georgia. Um, I had other brothers. In fact, all four of my older brothers had runnings with the law, spent some time in, in, in jail. And again, growing up, again, in the area where we did and where we were from, I mean, I have to thank, you know, God and, and, and my parents for transitioning us from Miami to Gainesville, where, you know, I was able to get serious about, you know, the life I wanted for myself and for my eventual family. But it was hard. I remember as a kid, and you'll never, ever forget those images, but, but the, you know, the officers would knock on the door and she'd show up and and they say, you got to come down and see about, you know, Chuck or, or Patrick or one of my other siblings. And my mother would close the door and I'd literally watch, you know, every time without fail, you know, tears well up in her eyes oh, uh, from disappointment and hurt. And I talked about this on the trail and I made a commitment that 
Uh, if I was ever going to make my mother cry, it was going to be for something good and for not for not for something bad. And I tried to, you know, as best I can stand by that. How is Chuck doing now? What is his life now? Oh, my goodness. Let me tell you. And this is why another reason why I believe so much in second chances. Right. So my brother gets out. And, and, you know, after spending that time, he reunites with, with his longtime girlfriend, who was the mother of his first child. They get married. They have a second child. He starts off starting a business because he couldn't get a job uh, from when he w- was applying and was getting rejection after rejection after rejection. So he decided to start a power washing, you know, business. So he power washed houses and then buildings and then sidewalks and turned that into, you know, opening up a car wash. Uh, that then starts today is doing extremely well in Jacksonville, Florida, where he's gotten contracts with big trucking companies to take old, you know, trucks and basically refurbish them to make them look like new and put them back out into the field. And he's doing incredibly well. My other brother opened up a little bodega store. Another one of my brothers started a tree cutting company. He actually died, you know, after uh, the hydraulic a machine that he was working collapsed, but he died doing the work that he loved to do at a business that he owned. Right. My other brothers went on to do uh, be, uh, become a publicist uh, and do moved out to L.A. and did work in, in, in Hollywood. So this is why people cannot be judged forever by their worst day. It's really astounding and obviously is a huge factor in how you want, you know, formerly incarcerated people to be given some kind of an opportunity That's when right. they when they emerge. Um you lost your father recently, I know, uh, which yeah. was he was at least 69, which must have been a very sad thing for, you know, for you and for your family. What did he teach you, really? What was his influence on your life? Uh, my dad, uh, first of all, my daddy never, ever, 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 ever met a stranger. Uh, at my graduation from, from, from college, 15 minutes into it, my mother said he got up and rubbed his hands together and said, so many people, so little time. <laughs> if that gives you an indication of the type of person he is, you know, trying to get around to bump into people and meet people. My dad did construction work, was not a, a, a member of a union, uh, but worked for a guy for decades. They built houses. He laid brick. On weekends, he would sell flowers out of the back of his pickup truck pitch a stand and sell fruits and vegetables at the flea market. I mean, really one of the hardest working men that I know. But what I will take most from my dad is just his gregarious and outgoing spirit. Um, He really tried to keep it positive. He struggled with alcoholism. Um, He struggled with what it meant never to live up to the expectations of many around him. Uh, But he loved us hard. Uh, He worked hard. Uh, He worked hard for me on the campaign trail, only to later learn that my dad got a cancer diagnosis that he didn't share with any of us. And he didn't share it because he's got some strong headed young kids who would have said, Daddy, we're going to treat this. We're going to go. We're going to get this done. And after the race was over, you know, at Christmas time, we were together. My dad, you know, looked a little ill. He had a little bit of a choke up in his in his throat. And, you know, he's, I just got the flu and, and pushed right through it, only to learn a few months later, we'd take him to the hospital with what we thought was pneumonia, only to later learn that he had cancer that had spread throughout his body. And it two weeks after his entry into the hospital, he was gone. And while I was deeply hurt and all of us were deeply offended about not knowing we also know that my dad went the way that he would have chosen and thank god you were able to spend that time with him you know that you were able to that's do that. right well i mean obviously i mean i i know you've said that you owe your wife a vacation now and want to spend more time with your three children how much of a hit was yes. family life taken on this campaign and can you do both i mean be a great dad and, oh and be a political mover shaker that you are 
Well, I'll tell you, um, first of all, my wife is an angel. I mean, she is a professional woman herself. She she runs the foundation for the Florida Dental Association. We've got three beautiful kids. My twins turn five next week. Uh, my, my youngest turns two next week. Uh, my wife and I celebrate 10 years of marriage in two weeks. It's all happening in your house. I call this month the Broke Gilla Month uh, for <laughs> me because of what, well, what we have to do. But I'll tell you, Tina, my wife is incredible, and she is as deep a believer in this work as I am. If for no other reason, this is not just for us. This is also for our three kids and also for the children whose names we cannot call. Um, we don't come by this by accident. We come by this intentionally. And so, yes, there are sacrifices. Um, and what I've got to do is make sure that I'm doing everything that I can to balance all of these things. But we don't make a distinction between the work that we're trying to achieve politically and what we're also trying to do in our family to raise and to support our three children and, and each other. Uh, we find them intertwined. Uh, but that being said, I'm going on a vacation in another week. My <laughs> wife and I are going to celebrate 10 years and it's badly needed and I'm looking forward to it. So thanks for asking about us. Good luck. And uh, thank you so much for joining me today on, on TBD. It's been really wonderful to talk to you. It's my treat. Keep doing great work, Tina. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to TBD with me, Tina Brown, brought to you by Wondery. You can subscribe to TBD on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep up with us however you listen to podcasts. And please don't keep TBD all to yourself. Tweet about it, Instagram it, or, you know, try having an actual conversation with a real person. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That's a great way to spread the word. Want to get more engaged with the energy around women's empowerment? Sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter of Women in the World for all the stories that you need to know coming to you from global women on the front edge of change. That's Women in the World. TBD is produced by Tina Brown, Kathleen Russo, Julie Subrin, Karen Compton, Justine Giannino, and Michael Solomon. Original theme music is composed by Forrest Gray. Come back next time for more smart people on TBD. TBD.